Hey, everybody. You're back in the cypher. This is uh, the new show, second episode, Sabbath Cypher. We got a great panel uh, with us. We got, of course, Brad, uh, a.k.a. Touring News. Uh, he knows a lot about money and gardening and leftism and uh, is uh, anti-temperance, I found out. You know, the other day in the chat, in his chat, he had someone who was trying to convince uh, the rest of us that uh, banning alcohol prohibition is, is a, is a socialist ideal. Um, he had nothing, you know, he was like, I, I don't want to deal with this shit anymore. So I, 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 you know, I kind of put the guy to the task and said, yes, a minor part of the temperance movement was anti-domestic violence, but it was the wrong tool for fighting domestic violence. Because when you have these toxic family structures, alcohol or no alcohol, shit's going to hit the fan. Plus you ban alcohol, you just create a black market. You don't actually get alcohol out of people's hands. Like, we saw how prohibition worked, but this person was, you know, not the brightest. Um, and uh, all, as always, a super mega producer, Forrest Miller, a.k.a. Always Flacco, a.k.a. Movie Night Extravaganza. So, yeah. Uh, Brett, how What's are you on? doing? What's going on? Yeah, I'm doing pretty well. Thank you for having me. Pardon if I uh, cough once or twice. I am kind of dealing with some kind of cold. Uh, but yeah, I'm super excited to be here and just chat a little bit about the things. Uh, kind of what you mentioned was um, I uh, I got into farming this year. So yeah, maybe chatting a little bit about like agriculture and what like, um, I guess I consider myself like a post-Doomer bloom wave person where I was like, I was a Doomer for a long time. I was like, um, everything is, you know, kind of done. Um, but then, you know, you research a little bit, you learn more about like regenerative ag or permaculture or no-till and so forth. And uh, yeah, came out the backside of Bloomer. So it'll be nice to chat about that a little. Definitely. Like, that's the whole point of the Cypers. We all come here with our different ideas. And um, yeah, I want to like really expand what we talk about, you know, especially as leftists. And when, you know, we get on social media, we're kind of uh, shoehorned into this discourse that doesn't really do anyone any good. So bringing new ideas to the table is always amazing. And speaking of new ideas, Forrest uh, is doing his movie night extravaganza where uh, we talk about movies. Uh, I was on recently the uh, Roadhouse episode and the Showgirl mm. episode, two films that are near and dear to my heart. It, those are the types of films I like, the medium to high budget shitty movie that is highly entertaining uh Forrest, how's your week been um my week's been all right traveled to long island for most of the week um we've we've decided to uh to like take a week break i guess from doing movie night extravaganza and we called the um the last episode we did which was nightmare alley we called that like the end of season one mm -hmm. and then uh next friday so six days from now we're gonna start season two with alien and um so we're gonna do like a whole month of sci-fi movies in December, and nice. I I 
I'm curious to see how it will go because we did the slasher film month in uh, October and really, really got into it. Ended up doing like 13 streams throughout like the month. So I'm really curious to see how many we uh, end up building up throughout it. But yeah, I'm excited for that. Nice. And like my suggestion now is the original Roadhouse with Ralph Macchio. Uh, it, it, have, you, have either of you seen it? Hmm. No. It is exactly Karate Kid, but instead of trying to be a karate champ, he tries to be a blues man. And I don't want to give away anything, but there he does battle with one of the devil's disciples at the end. And it's fucking ridiculous, but a lot of fun. Um, and then joining us soon is going to be Trevor from uh, Champagne Sharks, uh, who is an amazingly funny person. I know Forrest uh, cut a clip of uh, one of the conversations he had with Michael Brooks. Uh, what about you? Yeah, I have, I have two. I have two bits. One of them is the um, is the Nation of Islam Black Panther uh, bit because he was on for that episode, and I remember um, I remember cutting that when we did the uh, the like TMBS compilation where it was all of Michael's impressions for mm. like fifty minutes straight. Um, but so I have that one and I, then I have the Ben Shapiro AOC, uh, clip, which I thought was hilarious, which went on, I, I completely forgot about it, but went on for 45 minutes. I don't know how Trevor and Michael did it. But, um, <laughs> How's it going T? Uh, pretty good. How you guys doing? Your ears must've been burning. We're, uh, about to queue up that clip of you and Michael, uh, Brooks having, doing some fucking hilarious bits basically. <laughs> Oh, cool, cool, cool. Look at your background. I'm coming in here saying that I was the one that knew a little bit about farming, and you have all <laughs> kinds of greenery. You know, your windows are all good. Night. What are you growing back there? Uh, you know, it's funny. This uh, apartment has on one side of it uh, these huge uh, windows that let in a lot of sun. So people think I have like a really good green thumb, but really my apartment, by luck, has this natural greenhouse effect. So we just put everything that we can behind there. We put lavender. Um, rose bushes olive trees as long as it's something that could withstand a lot of sun it'll grow on this windowsill yeah so um people think like you have some kind of magic touch but it's really just an accident of just construction in nature that worked out pretty well it's more than i'm doing so yeah you got a green thumb as far as i'm concerned i have i have absolutely no green thumb and i like i went towards bloomer mode for this pandemic and then just crashed and burned pretty fucking hard i tried uh i'm at a i'm in a war with my family right now uh my mother and my stepfather they own like 1.7 acres of non-agricultural zoned arable land in bloomsburg pennsylvania and like it is it is difficult to deal with like zoning in the united states and like hoas and, you know all that kind of stuff or whatever um but they won't let me try to like push forward like a fight in that community in order to develop into some kind of like farming stuff because i went back there at the beginning of the pandemic in like april of 2020 and i'm like we need to grow food we need to like turn this backyard into everything they have a barn like it's it would just be perfect uh so yeah i'm but in i'm in a zoning they can't well, and they don't want to try even like it is legitimate. Oh, it's a, it's a hundred percent legitimate that you cannot right now because of the zoning. Um, so we would have to like petition the county, but I'm willing to like take oh. up that. I mean, I even said like there. Um, so I would be a part of the uh, Second Amendment left, uh, who would start to farm and be like, okay, you can tell me not to, uh, but it's, <laughs> but, but you, but you know, You're but you might not want to. Take these plants from my cold dead hands. <laughs> uh, so yeah, and I kind of I said that to my mother and my stepfather. I was like, it's food. Like if they want to come and find us and like run us off, like that's a fight that I'll take through the court system. And let's begin to have this kind of conversation. Um, but I, they, they're much more conservative uh, than I am. Uh, I mean, they're conservatives. Uh, so 
Yeah, there's been some friction, but I, you know, I keep trying to fight with them about it. So, yeah, homeowners well, like there's a there's a are the worst. They're like literally the most fascist form of government that exists. Like we had one, and you know, I had a medical card for uh, cannabis, and uh, my downstairs neighbor through the HOA made it so we couldn't uh, smoke anywhere on the premises. And they're like, well, what about edibles? What about vape pens? I'm like, that doesn't work for my issues. So mm -hmm. like, but there, but you know, there's no, yeah, I didn't, you don't get an ADA compliance or any shit like that. It's just like, oh, the HOA and I was a rule. You can't smoke cannabis anywhere on the premises. The, um, there anymore. Fascist, it's like fascist suburbia. It's, it's, it's very real. But this is, this is, this is the city. These are people that move from the suburbs into the city and they want the city to be like Schomburg, Illinois. Oh, there's a thing called, so the, oh, go ahead T. I'll just say it real quick because mine's fast. I, I, on the Lower East Side, uh, you know, that's like where there's tr traditionally been a bunch of bars, a bunch of people partying, you know, um, live music. And when gentrification was taken over in the Lower East Side, that would happen all the time. People would move in across the street from a bar and then just call about the bar all the time. It's like, why did you move to yeah. Lower East Side slash East Village? This is not the suburbs. There's a there's a farm in Colorado where I was at. I was working on a farm for like two and a half months out there this year. Um, but there's one near it called Jack Solar Farm, and it's uh, it's the nation's largest agrivoltaics uh, research facility. So what agrivoltaics is is um, you build uh, your solar panels maybe like um, his were six feet and eight feet uh, above the soil, and um, there's a maximum amount of sunlight that plants can intake uh, to do photosynthesis, and anything beyond that maximum level. Uh, just kind of leads to further transpiration and evaporation. So like you're, you're losing a lot of water. So if you build the solar panels up above, you can give a little bit of shade to your crops down below, uh, which, you know, saves water, which saves energy. And actually, because that air is lower below the solar panels, you're getting more efficiency with your panels because they're operating at a cooler temperature. So there's a lot of benefits to it. Um, I tell this story because he had to go through all kinds of uh, battles with Boulder County in Colorado in order to be able to sell solar energy back into the grid uh, because the county of Boulder has designed their, I'm going to call it the Boulder County HOA, um, that you're not allowed to build solar energy farms and sell it back into the grid. And I think it's because the rich NIMBYs in Boulder don't want solar farms to kind of like block their view or just like cloud uh, their view or so forth. So the farm that I was working on, Metacarbon USDA Certified Organic, uh, they can't really install solar energy on their farm because in order to have solar work, you would want to over-install and then be able to sell back into the grid, but you don't really want to like under-install and then have to use nat gas and propane and kind of like legacy energy systems. So you would want to like put in overcapacity and be able to pump back into the grid, but they're not allowed to do this by the Boulder County, uh, which is just like hurting every level of what they're trying to do farming. Motherfuckers everywhere. Yeah. Um, hey, Forrest, why don't we start off with the uh, Substack essay and have a talk about um, fiction and nonfiction. And uh, then I, I want to watch some clips, uh, definitely the ones with uh, Trevor and, and Michael. Um, it's funny that this is the Sabbath cipher, uh, which is, you know, taken from the, the cipher is taken from the, you know, five percenter nation. And uh, we're going to watch a clip where you guys talk about the nation of Islam. So it all it's all related. So yeah, this essay here, um, it's a play on an old Metallica record, uh, Metal Up Your Ass. But uh, recently I've been writing a lot about my past experiences. And for some reason, these people that like I barely knew, people I like went to high school or even junior high with are going online and trying to debunk them for some reason. Um, 
people that like that never happened to you. It's like, well, these were people who were never very close to me. So they wouldn't know all these stories. And even beyond that, like I pers I just went through this uh, eight week intense psychiatric program where I uncovered a bunch of suppressed and repressed memories and was able to connect them to uh, bigger picture things that I've learned in life. Um, and I don't even know what their incentive is on doing this, but they're going on, you know, I, I shut off almost all my social media, but now they're on my Instagram account posting comments and I'm blocking people all the time. And it made me think about uh, when James Frey put out this book, A Million Little Pieces, which of course was an Oprah Winfrey uh, book club recommendation. Um, the man sold a ton of books. It was about um, his uh, battles with addiction. And some asshole journalist decided to like dig into uh, his history and dig into like public documents and said, well, this never happened to you and that never happened to you. And then Oprah, of course, turned on him too and said she felt like she was scammed. And the, you know, my bottom line on it was he wrote this book, beautifully written. It really resonated with a lot of people. It got a lot of people to look at their own addiction problems and, and seek help. And I think that was good enough. You know, the man was an author and I don't really care, you know, how truthful these things are. And, you know, there are things in our past that sometimes we've never shared with others because we're ashamed of or make us sad or triggered. And then we don't talk about it until later. And, you know, people were calling him like a scam artist and telling him that he, uh, he shouldn't have been writing these books and basically ruined the man's uh, writing career over it. And uh, just, you know, I think this might be a good way to start talking. Like when people do write about their past or, or write at all, do they have some sort of obligation to be stenographers of their past or should they have that poetic license? I, I think about when Hunter S. Thompson wrote uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, he didn't actually see fucking bats. It wasn't actually bat country. It was metaphorical and it was also he was on a lot of interesting drugs and for me that made a great narrative that really resonated with me um how do you all feel about you know this issue um I, I guess i'll go uh well i feel kind of strange about it in that um i normally i'm okay with poetic license but i feel like if you yourself are kind of holding up the authenticity of what you're doing as uh, a prime part of why people should buy your book, then you should be held accountable to that. So I guess for me, it comes down to, to what extent was James Frey, um, either through lying by omission or actively lying, kind of pushing the idea that, you know, this was super true and that's why you should you should buy the book. Because I feel like Hunter S. Thompson, it was kind of understood, uh, even if implicitly, that it was uh surreal and that he was being kind of a unreliable narrator in certain in certain ways. So I don't know the answer about how he promoted the book. So I don't know if one of you guys knows, but I would say that would be what my answer would be contingent on. Uh what he himself uh did. I don't have a good answer at all. Um, if I were to write anything about my past, I I wouldn't do any type of like uh, poetic license or embellishing or so forth. And I guess this kind of like ties into my um, we were talking or Kenzo. I think you were sitting in my stream a little bit the other day um, of like um, oh I completely lost my train of thought. Um, I felt that I've had to like go out and learn a lot of things and be like forged by being in the public eye, and it's kind of made me a better person. Um, 
Uh, but I actually, I lost my train of thought. I'm going to pass it to somebody else. <laughs> well, I, I think that when it comes to narrative about addiction, uh, specifically, there's a little bit of the like stolen valor thing that goes into it. Like that, that idea, like, and I don't necessarily think that that's, you know, right or wrong, but the idea that somebody could be lying at a point that's that vulnerable and, uh, kind of like, you know, uh, embellishing their stories. I mean, to some extent, I think everybody does. But I think like the idea that, you know, people could be making things up about their addiction for people that are addicts that are like recovering addicts um, hits especially hard. So I'm not saying that, you know, there's a um, good or bad thing, but it's kind of like war stories in, in the sense of like um, an identity that's been so like because I, I think as someone that's um, had a little bit of experience with AA, didn't stay for very long, didn't get anything out of it. But like when I was a lot younger, I, I went to see like, you know, just for a little bit. And um, it, it, fe it felt like, you know, it was almost like you were hearing war stories and people had taken this uh, addiction part of themselves or like the struggle for, with addiction and put it at such a center of their um, personality and who they are and who they've become um, through like a, a program that, you know, finding out somebody was lying felt like some kind of betrayal, like in the same way that almost like uh, lying about combat would, <laughs> which is kind of an interesting thing. I don't think that that makes it moral or immoral to um, make up those stories within a, a book but i do understand the backlash against that so did it come out a little bit that some of um this person's addiction uh stories have been fabricated or can, can i be caught up slightly there is yeah, that what happened basically it like there there are some very specific people uh like i, I don't know if i want to say characters but you know the people in his in his book that uh the experiences that he wrote about uh, didn't check out, you know, like people like looked through obituaries or, you know, journalists went through obituaries and stuff like that and saw that, um, you know, it, things just didn't track basically. Yeah. If that were the case, then I would take, um, I, I would take pretty big issue with that. Um, I guess. Cause like, I, I don't, once, uh, once my trust has been broken, it's kind of like, you know, it's really like difficult to get back or not that it's difficult to get back, but like if you can be willing to lie for profit on or even deceive for profit and kind of like um, take like what is such immense levels of pain that so many people are struggling with and kind of warp it and bend it to your will for some type of benefit, it would give me like a skeptical lens on like a lot of other type of work. And I think maybe what I was trying to like touch it to a little bit more is like um, I felt like I was an imposter watching youtube videos about farming and like talking about agriculture uh, a lot like in the winter of last year and that was kind of why like i went and did you know the road trip across the country this year was because like i wanted to be able to actually like have had some of the experience and be able to speak about it because it didn't exactly feel mm. i knew that i wouldn't be believed by broad swaths of people if i hadn't gone out and walked the walk in addition to kind of like talking the talk so i guess it would be yeah it would be pretty important to me that um I, I think that I'm blessed to live in the public spotlight. It made me a beyond better person than I ever could have become. Um, you know, I'm, I like judge myself every day. I think that I'm judged by other people every day. I think that we're kind of like um, in combined unison, like evaluating actions to make sure that they're building better towards something positive. I know that, you know, the media spotlight doesn't always have that effect, um, but it's been one of the best like positive feedback loops for me at least. One of the things that's like kind of coming up for me is like, so I've you know done organizing work for about 20 years and I write about it and I used to talk about it on social media a lot. And uh, it's not that I think you have to be doing organizing work to talk about politics. I don't think that at all. But 
when people like put out when people don't have that experience but then will uh disagree with people who do in a way where they're very sure of themselves like what what's really coming up for me is you know we'll come back to that the dave Chappelle tweet where i simply said i like dave Chappelle, and all of these people who like don't leave their houses uh, we're telling me like, oh, you know, I can't feel safe around you. You know, you're, you're, you're undoing the movement. And I'm like, try to knock on some working class person's door and then look through their Netflix queue and say, oh, I can't talk to you about the union now because you like this, this comic. And I was trying to get that across to people. Like if you're out there having conversations with people who aren't stuck in the internet left or anything, they're not going to have patience for that shit. They're not going to have patience for you saying, you're not a perfect leftist, therefore you can't be part of it. And I think that's the reason why you look at DSA as much as uh, there's been strides in organizing membership there, you know, they're stuck at a hundred or where I should say we're, I still pay dues, a hundred thousand members. And I don't know how much further we can go if we're canceling off people or killing off people who are just regular working people who want to like watch a comedy special and maybe talk to their coworkers about a union. I, I felt that way about like the Jamal Bowman uh, controversy that's kind of come up in the last with DSA in the last few weeks, where I I definitely disagree with um you know Jamal Bowman getting like going with J Street to uh, Israel kind of mm -hmm. voting for Iron Dome funding I think that both of those things are pretty abhorrent I mean he did go to like Palestine too and you know walked around Gaza and stuff but um I I think that like you know, kicking somebody out or like expelling them that really has a place in Congress right now, that really is a line between, uh, you know, the DSA and Congress is not a good idea. Uh, like are they, are I, they kicked I, them out or is that just a discussion now? They're, they're having a discussion. And then, you know, there's a bunch of articles written. Should we expel Jamal Bowman? Should we, uh, keep, I, I mean, someone's saying he, he didn't walk around Gaza. I thought he like met with uh, he may have, well, I was going to I was about to ask that question, like, cause I've been to the West bank, but I've never been to Gaza. And I know that it's extremely difficult to get any type of access into Gaza, but you can go into the West Bank uh, through like multiple different channels. So uh, maybe he walked through the West Bank. Well, he went. He met with like Rashida Tlaib's grandmother, who um, still lives in Palestine. I don't know where she lives, but there was like a. Um, he like did a you know he like took pictures there and, um, trying to see what the exact details of it were but but like so i just you know i mean whether like the details are are less important than i think um you know completely trying to excommunicate and cut somebody off that has uh okay with the israeli permission he got into the west bank still though i like i think cutting somebody off that, that has a position in congress you know like cutting that line is not a a smart move for the dsa that's uh yeah i i mean you know the idea of censure and a warning yeah i mean i i would agree with that more than i would like literally expelling the guy from <laughs> the I, yeah i was about to say i think that like a, a public tar and feathering and like just a showing that almost all of our organization is completely against this this isn't what we voted you there for this isn't why we want you to represent us this isn't what our organization stands for and i i do like what this kind of person would be saying to yes censure and warning and be I think that there actually kind of can be a lot of value in that tar and feathering uh, and like kind of humbling a person and making them look in the mirror and kind of like evaluate their decisions and judgments. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would agree with that. Um, I don't think like, I'm not saying that, you know, uh, everybody in the DSA should be quiet and not, you know, um, and not publicly warn Jamal Bowman about that. But like, 
But my, my point more is about like cutting off that tie and being like, oh, well, you know, when there's so few um, people in the DSA to start with, like to say, oh, well, we have like a couple people that are in Congress that, um, you know, consider themselves members of DSA. Like, let's cut that off publicly and be like, well, you're out. Um, I don't think is necessarily the best move. I'd love to get to a point where you kind of could do that to politicians and hold them accountable to that level. But like, you know, it, it, that, that comes from a position of power, I think. See, what do you think? I mean, I'm not that involved in uh, DSA stuff, so it's kind of like I'm just listening and just trying to. Um, but what you're talking about is the tweet that Bowman did, the one that got a lot of people upset. Um, I mean, it was less a tweet, I think. Um, well, th there was a tweet that was part of it. And then he also voted, I think, for Iron Dome funding. And he also uh, took that trip with uh, J Street to Israel, which, you know, not good. Definitely two things that are not good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like this is such a repeated story. I'm not really sure what the answer is, because I remember that whole, I mean, everyone remembers that whole forced to vote thing that happened that uh, took up a whole bunch of time and then. When it was all said and done, I'm not really sure what the end result was for uh, change in, in either direction. So, I, I mean, I don't know. Like, part of what I'm trying to figure out is, is this just a regular part of uh, what to expect from electoralism now? Like, you get a lot of hope and then you get disillusioned. You know what I mean? Like, um, from Obama to AOC to um, now Jamal Bowman, I just feel like this is just what seems to happen you um somebody talks good tweets tweets all the right things and then when they get in there and the practical realities i'm putting scare quotes um uh, suddenly have them telling you all these compromises so yeah i mean i don't really know what the answer it's something i've been struggling with uh, myself because the, yeah the, this is where because i guess i would probably won't be one of the people that would fall in the still I would still be involved with intellectualism, but what I would like to see a person who is like going to be running, I would like to see them say like, if I vote, uh, codify it into like, um, somehow I, we'll have to talk about how that part would go. But, um, if you vote against your constituency, like twice, uh, maybe like the third time you have to vote, like what your constituents constituency wants for, or is there, is there a way of actually like kind of like, um, developing language to keep one of these like politicians actually accountable? Like maybe they could write a, a new thing within their district uh, for a way for them to be recalled. If they go against um, what like the people would be, go ahead, T. Yeah, uh, no, I'm agree. I was just saying that I agree. I, I love what you're saying. That's all I was yeah, gonna say. More like um, I've thought where if I ever run for office, I'm gonna say like I'll wear a body camera everywhere that I'm allowed to. We can put all of this video up in. Uh, you know, if you if I ever have to have a meeting with somebody, like this is gonna be publicly broadcasted. So I've kind of and yeah, I've been looking into like governance or into like different things like this and transparency. And I think a lot of the problem right now is like there isn't any. There's no transparency in like behind the door meetings. There's no transparency in bank accounts. There's no transparency or audits for like even, you know, in the big environmental movement, they're supposed to put like $80 billion per year uh, to go to developing nations to develop like sustainable and renewable energies. Well, the money's not really auditable. And then there was this whole like back and forth, like big Twitter thing with like uh, the World Food Program and Musk and like, okay, what would you do with this money? And what would you do with that money? And it's just, 
everything is very, very opaque um, at the moment. And this is uh, one of the big problems that we're dealing with, with a lot of our like electoral institutions or democratic institutions and with the people that are trying to like represent us. So we've really got to get into some type of way of forcing them into radical transparency and having like better ability to uh, F them up a little bit when they're like not doing what the constituency that they represent would be for. I mean, I Something think that happens also- a lot with, no, no, the thing happens ahead. a lot with keyboard with keyboard radicals and stuff is that uh, a lot of them like to kind of flex on how much they're into electoralism at all and everything's like electoralism. You know, sucks revolution, revolution. But you know, they're on the keyboard all day. Like realistically, you know, I get the problem with people who are over invested in electoralism. But uh, realistically, that's gonna have to be one of the prongs of the fight. And anyone who's trying to you know, act like they can totally sidestep it, you know, I think they're going to have to prove that they have some kind of uh, real tangible plan for any type of revolution outside of just tweeting theory all day. And usually they, they don't. So I, yeah. I kind of want to tell a story of what I'm struggling with in my town now. So I live in, I just moved back to Mount Carmel, Pennsylvania. Uh, it was like a 16,000 person coal town. And uh, now it's down to about like 4,000 people. It voted about like 87% Trump. Uh, I'm living with my aunt and my grandmother right now. And I came back here because I'm interested in starting like some kind of farm project or agricultural project and getting involved like in local politics here. Um, but I kind of wanted to tell the story to give like an introspection into like how much I think about like each action I would do outside, how it's perceived by other people in order to get like certain political goals done in this town. Uh, there's a bar down the street, Dorco's. Uh, my dad went there about like five weeks ago. Doesn't really have good ventilation. He got COVID-19. He healed from it. He's doing a lot better now. Uh, my aunt and my grandmother go to the Eagles up the street. They go play shuffleboard and this kind of stuff. Bar, it's a smoking bar, better ventilation and so forth. They go in there, they don't wear masks. So I went out to Dorco's the one night and I went in there. There was about 60 people there, not very well ventilated. Nobody was wearing masks. And I was like, I can't be in here. I'm living with my aunt and I'm living with my grandmother. So I tell this whole preamble to be like, I want to go, I'm very new coming back into this town. I live. I haven't been here for about 25 years. I want to go down to this bar. I want to go meet people. However, if I wear a mask uh, to go in there at the beginning, I'm going to be kind of like stereotyped pretty quickly, unwilling, you know, well, willingly by the people, but like 50 or 60 people are going to look at me and be like, who's the lib that just moved back into town. And I'm going to kind of like immediately ostracize like myself, like kind of quickly there. And I'll tie this into a little, like I've been researching or looking into like, what is Luddism or what is like neo-Luddism. And I've almost kind of come to the realization or thought that like, I have to approach like politics in this town through, I think, like uh, talking like a Luddite uh, principle of like, um, you know, machines kind of came in, you know, overshoring and offshoring of jobs like happened rather than like immediately kind of come from like a socialist lens or like a collectivist, like an operating lens. So I kind of just like, I, I really just kind of wanted to like put out there, like, at least when I'm thinking, like I, I rage at times and like when I'm on stream, you know, I, I definitely like lose control of it. But typically like when I'm in sound of mind, like usually every action that we take and every like step that we take, and maybe I overanalyze, but it really, I, I like how Megan Day puts it. Like if you're going to be a socialist, uh, every action that you take has to be towards it. Uh, and it's really kind of super important that I learned like some of these messages through her and through like Bernie's like not me us campaign a little bit. One of the things that's uh, coming up for me was uh, kind of some keyboard warriors uh, I'm, a, I'm the executive board of the Chicago Teachers Union, and some people put forth this uh, pro, it was a pro-Palestine um, uh, resolution, and it really didn't have any teeth to it. It was basically just saying the Chicago Teachers Union stands with Palestine, 
And reading through it, I agreed with it a hundred percent. Like I am a hundred percent pro Palestine. I'm I support BDS. I don't eat the you know the Sabra hummus or any of that shit. Uh, but I also was watching the discourse and it was fucking rancid. It was a lot of uh, our conservative members are Zionists, and then we have some hardcore Zionists too. I'd say Union is probably split. Be you know, there's there's a small faction of hardcore Zionists, and then there's a huge group in the middle that just doesn't want us talking about it. And, you know, I looked through the resolution at first I supported it. And then talking to other members, I realized the union right now we're on our heels, like COVID the mayor fucked us really hard, used that opportunity to um, force us back to the building way before it was safe um, without people being vaccinated and all that. And, you know, fighting that uh, hurt our image in the public eye. And it also divided us within so right now is not the time for us to do anything very divisive. And if I thought that passing this resolution was going to free Palestine, I would have pushed hard for it. But I also understood that a resolution written by a 25,000 member union in Midwest America isn't going to do shit for the Palestinian people. So I looked at it very practically. And when I spoke about it on the floor of the House of Delegates, our, our governing body, I said, you know, I gave a whole speech about how I'm pro-Palestine. And then I said, but look, like this resolution is going to do nothing but divide our union even further, and it's not going to free Palestine. So I think we should table it, not vote on it, and then have more discussions and maybe have some political education and then see, like, you know, if we can move some people. And um, it, uh, it, you know, we didn't pass it, you know, not just because of me, but a few people had that same message. And um, I think it was the right decision, but I didn't, you know, it was like one of those decisions where I didn't feel good about it, but at the end of the day, our union needs to be strong. And then maybe five, six years from now, if people become more pro-Palestine within our union and we're back at the strength we were, you know, prior to COVID, maybe we could push it again. But right now we just don't have the, you know, the power to, to do much for, for Palestinians. It's so crazy that that was only five months ago that you made that speech. Because I remember I, I the first interview that I did solo on, on Ben Burgess's channel was talking to you about that for an hour. Oh, that's um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's like, it's crazy. It feels like that was so long ago and it wasn't at all. <laughs> and I quoted uh, Michael Brooks directly a couple times in my speech. So why, actually, why don't we go ahead and queue up uh, one of those clips with uh, Trevor and Michael? That would have been a tough one for me as you're getting ready to cue that up. Um, I hear your argument. I was also listening, not argument position. Um, I was listening to somebody the other day, like kind of talking about uh, Saudi Arabia and oil and like, should we talk with, you know, and so forth. And um, I don't know how I would have gone. I probably, hmm, hmm. It would have taken me a very, very long time to think about that decision uh, and whether to vote in, in favor or vote against it. Um, and thanks for, yeah, thanks for bringing it up and putting it in my mind. Cause I now have something to think about. Those are like, there's literally stats. Like I, I've read somewhere, like there, there's some, and obviously like everywhere in the world, like everybody's looking at a huge amount of pornography, but I think they literally is that like in the United States, highest pornography rates are in the most Christian conservative States and globally, some of the highest countries are in like the middle East. Right. Like it just makes sense. Like if you're suppressed, it's going to come out. No, definitely. Right. So, uh, so that being said, I would speculate. And the key word here is speculate. What Ben Shapiro is really trying to say is, Oh my God, Ma, please. 
<laughs> See, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez was not saying that, but I'm guessing that. <laughs> uh, what what brand what brand is that shirt? Because it must say made in heaven. <laughs> I like how I'm just taking it that he's like straight up grimy, but you're actually capturing the type of <laughs> fucking lame shit that he actually would say. There was another. Did it hurt? <laughs> what? When you fell from heaven? Oh, it looks, it looks like you. Uh, it looks like you uh, dropped something. It looks like conversation. Let's uh, pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> that is the ultimate Ben Shapiro hollow eye. <laughs> Want to be? Want to bait in the sheets? I <laughs> <laughs> have a free and open exchange of bodily fluids. <laughs> I'm gonna, fill, I'm gonna filibuster you open. Oh. <laughs> Come on, Ma, don't filibuster. <laughs> I'm gonna filibuster nut. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, All of a sudden, I'm I was sorry, gonna say, sorry. now we're making Ben yeah, Shapiro yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's <laughs> now, he, now he could be here. <laughs> this is an alternative world where he studied abroad or something. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a new character. Uh, ben Shapiro is a halfway paid-up member of the human race. PUA Shapiro or something. PUA, yeah. <laughs> so here's the thing, guys. <laughs> yeah, it's like one of those old videos, <laughs> like when all that those that trash was popular. He's just like. A lot of guys think they can't get girls. I'm here to tell you I was really shy in high school. I didn't get many dates. I have banged supermodels from every single continent, including <laughs> Brazilian twins. How did I do it? The four steps. Confidence, conversation, debate, and infatuation. Okay, we're going to go through the steps here. Everything, everything, <laughs> everything is debatable, even or no. <laughs> Oh, God, well, now says, now no. we're getting into the real creepy. She says no. Ask her to debate. <laughs> I have literally overpowered with logic unwilling <laughs> women from across all four. <laughs> I have literally exhausted women into dates, sex, and even more. <laughs> this debate tactic called sex by attrition. Right. Never fails. Just debate her until she just wants you to shut up. Now you go. Now you've studied at some highfalutin liberal school. You go, wait, it sounds like you're advocating some form of sexual coercion. It's not. And I'll legally explain to you why. I went to Harvard Law School. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> now, now, now we literally are just talking about that whole scene. But actually, that he missed his true calling. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine like the people at the Ben Shapiro uh, boot camp. <laughs> The dredges of society. Confidence, conversation, debate, infatuation. I think that just beautifully says it all right there. Like, whether you're a PUA or you're like one of these right wing uh, grifter scumbags, like it's just shooting <clears throat> confidence and never uh, admitting any kind of personal faults. And that's why, like, you know, as a you know, as a streamer and podcaster, I'll admit when I'm wrong, and I'll even say I'm not even so sure about this. It's just theory. And I think that's why, you know, part of the reason why my numbers aren't as big as someone like uh, the guy with the red ponytail or the guy that calls himself Destiny. Wait, don't I? Have, I think I have a red ponytail, don't I? I meant, I meant the V V guy. Oh, okay, right. I was gonna, I was gonna say, I'm pretty sure it's back. <laughs> uh, but yeah, my hair is actually wildly, ridiculously long. I think it's like down to here at this point now. Nice. <laughs> By the way, I remember, I remember editing that uh, clip. And it went on for 45 minutes. Like the 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 conversation about AOC. Um, like I guess AOC, if I remember correctly, like uh, said that uh, what Ben Shapiro was doing was like catcalling, and Ben Shapiro freaked out. 
and the the bit went on for 45 minutes <laughs> like it started out just as like a like a normal reading of the tweets and everything in the back and forth and then 45 minutes later it was the it was that <laughs> <laughs> I think I should apologize. Like, <laughs> I'm I'm good for running something into the ground, but that was just a we having so much fun on that one. Yeah, I mean it's a good um, response to like what AOC was doing, which was reducing real problems and like real bullshit that Ben Shapiro was putting out to like something that gets a lot of clicks in in retweets. Well, I mean it is that that debate me debate me debate like it is kind of its own form of maybe not like Megan? cat calling per se but like it yeah i mean this is it's its own like uh yeah it, kind of, it is nagging i mean i guess that's that's kind of the best term for because <laughs> the problem with the way that he debates it's not like well i think this is most debates honestly is that uh it's not really about getting to like the bigger truth of anything but like um what's it called is it called like mott and bailey what is it called when someone just tries to um I'm never good at remembering all the fallacies, but I noticed one where the person just tries to overwhelm you with uh, um, stats and facts, even if they don't actually directly relate to what uh, they're uh, you guys are talking about, or that they need more context to be fully understood. But yeah, what he does is he just talks. Yeah, I know, really I know fast. which one you're talking about. I don't know. I'm like one I'm person said Gish Gallup in my channel. Yeah, Gish Gallup. That's, that's I get I get accused Gish of Gallup, that. I get a, I get accused of that all the time. Um, and I try to say like, no, like I'm. These are all relevant. Like I, I promise you, this all like relates together. Um, but yeah, I've I've been accused of this before, uh, unaccurately. Uh, I, I would say. Yeah, but he's right. Ten it's, it's why. Gallup. <laughs> so, so that's why I don't really look at what um, AOC did as like a, a reducing of a good faith effort into something bad because even if what she did was a little bit kind of silly to reduce it to a cat call, what he was doing was not really any serious inquiry into the truth either. You know what I mean? Mm. Well, it's also it's never good. It's never really good faith when a um, any kind of pundit tries to challenge a politician to a debate, right? Because the stakes are different. Like, you know, you can debate policy with another politician, or you can debate policy um, with someone who's like, you know, uh, some kind of lawmaker. I don't. I don't think that there's any, you know, use in a politician doing that. But like, you can do that. But you know, when it's someone like Ben Shapiro, there's no. Like he's just going to try to cut the clip into like embarrassing AOC and being like Ben Shapiro right now. Uh, you know, uh, embarrasses AOC, embarrasses sitting congresswoman. Like, there's no upside to her, and there's only upside to Ben Shapiro in, in that case. To run with what you're talking about, um, I have seen so many times where right-wing media will take uh, one tweet from, like, a three-month-old account or, or something and turn it into an entire national narrative. Um, and they've become just quite adept uh, over decades of practice of um, taking like one little thing and utilizing it as um, as like a piece of red meat to throw out to their base uh, that's going to just like get a ravenous response and get a lot of clicks and then kind of make it into like a national media headline. And um, kind of like to what you're pointing at here, it's um, th they're really just looking for one clippable moment for one uh, bad moment. And then that becomes uh, the biggest thing that would be spoken about. Uh, well, I mean, I, you know, Glenn Greenwald did it with the Kyle Rittenhouse thing recently. Mm -hmm. um, there was a, an account that, like, this is this is what ended up setting me off, and then getting into a lot of like, I, I got into that back and forth with Glenn Greenwald, and like, 
it kind of exploded. That never ends. That's never yeah. a good uh, back and forth. But, but one of the things that like <laughs> around that same time is that some some random account that was like looks like it was somebody that was pretty well informed and was like working for some kind of media company. So it definitely was not a good faith tweet whatsoever. But they were like, oh, well, I, I was never aware. Um, They're like, I haven't been following the Rittenhouse thing very carefully. I haven't really been watching it. But I didn't realize that, you know, the people that he shot were white and he was being, he's being called a white supremacist. And I never like questioned the, the mainstream narrative, which like, all right, well, then fucking pay attention. Like, it's not like that information isn't out there. Fucking pay attention to it. And then, you know, Glenn Greenwald like quoted that and turned it into like, yeah, media narratives about this have been uh, completely skewed and like spiraled from there. And then all of a sudden, like other right wing people were quoting it. And, you know, I mean, not necessarily that he's always right wing with his opinions, but like, you know, a bunch of other people started quoting it. And then like, yeah, like, you know, mainstream media narratives. I didn't know that his victims were white either. And it's like, this is not like, this is changing a narrative to be about media coverage rather than being about the trial itself, which is of course what the right wanted. But like, I don't know. I think this is where I take, um, I take Twitter and social media and Twitch probably overly seriously. Uh, and I'd be willing to like, um, you know, take that uh, critique or pushback. However, I do have a deep concern of the vast amounts of people that think that it's cool to just like meme and have fun and joke around about like a lot of really important political topics all the time. And then say like, Oh, it's just Twitter or it's just Twitch. And you know, like we're not important or like nothing like ever gets said or whatever, because like one little comment from any one of us could end up becoming a narrative for however long you could imagine. It could be replayed across like a multitude of different uh, media cycles. And I think that we do have to, you know, Again, I probably take it to the extreme, and there's definitely a position between like being overly serious where I would be, and like being able to have like a little bit of fun. Um, but I wish that we would kind of realize like no, every one of our actions is like taking another pebble, throwing it into the ripple, and those ripples have like other waves uh, that go out forward. Uh, I mean, and this, this is, is to like your a, point too. Since this is like a free form cipher, I guess. Like I'll I'll admit that I think a, a thing that I've been grappling with that's um, been hard for me is. Uh, realizing that like more and more I actually have some type of reach, like not much of a reach on, on Twitter or anything, but like enough that I'm not just like still tweeting out to a bunch of my, you know, friends and like people around me that, you know, that I know um, or like that are people that I just kind of hang out with, which, you know, for being on Twitter for the last uh, like 10 years or something like, you know, probably eight or nine of those years were just that like it was just a local twitter account that it's just people that i knew that i was like joking around with and most people would just be like all right well he's just ranting about something again like i'm not even going to pay attention to it and realizing in the last year going from you know working um working with michael where i was not on camera at all i was just editing so nobody really knew who i was even though i was kind of involved in stuff and having conversations with people to like then being like ben's producer uh on you know give them an argument and then having my own show now and like you know producing for other people and actually being in front of a webcam and being on twitch and like actually having a voice and having a lot of like not a lot of people like i'm still a small twitter account but like you know having more people that i don't know that you know that are in a bunch of different places i've definitely struggled with remembering the fact that that's the case uh throughout the last few months like i'll, I'll say something that i'm just like kind of joking around about and then realize like no wait like this is you know this is a wider Thing or somebody will will jump back and challenge it like you know what i mean because i really i hate the twitch incentive thing where it's like you know uh it incentivizes you to like have feuds or problems with people but then something will happen like you know me making a joke about um like glenn greenwald and then glenn greenwald sees it and just goes back and forth with me 
and I realized like, no, this is actually like a, a bigger, a more influential, uh, I guess, Twitter account than I'm used to dealing with. And I need to think about that more. And like, it's not good for someone that kind of just gets drunk and tweets a lot, like not often, but like, you know, enough that I'm like, yeah, maybe don't do that. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad. The level to which feuding is incentivized in the streaming world, but it's really kind of crazy. But people really eat that feuding stuff up like views will go up if there's like a beef and there's a like, for example, I've been um watching some of tim black's recent stuff and he's been uh doing like these wwe style like shoots and stuff and i can't lie it's pretty entertaining i will watch them i don't even know who's shooting with what's that has this green screen gotten better um you you know what i haven't seen it before so i don't have a point of comparison (laughs) oh but there was a little while there was a little while where he would have the green screen behind him and it would just like not capture oh sounds like mine (laughs) i i I didn't see i like tim black's work i it's just i always saw that and i was like i didn't see i didn't see uh his other stuff but i know the kind of stuff you're talking about where it has the flicker has like a weird like flicker to it and all this stuff yeah yeah i didn't notice that when i saw uh what he was doing or like you can see the edge of it like you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, but I do see like people go, you know, get really like 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 worked worked up about it. Like when when uh, Brianna Joy Gray will be like arguing with somebody, and I see like Twitter will like light up and everything, and I I see like subscriber people subscriber numbers go up and everything. So people do really get um energized by a lot of that so i can see the temptation of uh, my back and forth with glenn greenwald i got 40 followers within two hours like, oh i believe it, it totally yeah, i like, think that that all uh i think that this predates um a lot of social media though even because i would try to like relate this back to like imagine two musicians uh getting into a feud and then it gets picked up by the tabloids and then you know like all bad or um any press is good press you, you know like that i think predated a lot of our social media kind of communications and so forth because yeah, like it, it gets beef. your name out there exactly yeah, rap beefs there were people whose whole careers like got uh made or destroyed by mm-hmm. how they did in the rap beef pre-internet so yeah totally. yeah so or, this know, is or, it's something you know, that we have to understand it's like this is a pervasive kind of cultural thing um that is being amplified magnified and exacerbated on social media 100 million percent not going to disagree with you at, at that at all um however I'm, i think that it is like a fundamental uh, issue that was well i don't know like how back through society it dated but i mean probably even then you know like i don't know if i mean you're thomas feeling... jefferson and john adams used to kind of go back and forth in like publications <laughs> similar to a rap beef they used to say some crazy stuff about each other and he was this yeah. and fucking thomas thomas jefferson was his vice president because uh up till that point the person that came in second or whatever was your vice president it, it, so it's like it would be like joe biden having donald trump as his vice president like, like, <laughs> well lincoln lincoln <laughs> He, he stocked his whole cabinet with people who hated each other because he wanted to have that diversity of opinion and have everyone in a room fight it out and then come out with some sort of, you know, I don't know if they were dialectical, but like some sort of uh, agreement. And, you know, that would not fly today because they'd all be tweeting shit about each other all day. And it'd be like the Trump administration where people continuously uh, get fired over, uh, you know, taking it too far. Well, also, I mean, not just... Um... Have you ever have, have any of you guys ever read uh, any of uh, W. E. Du Bois has his um, like had his newspaper. He had a bunch of different newspapers, but um, 
he would he would just go at like Marcus Garvey. He would go at like all of these different like anyone that slightly yeah. disagreed with him. His uh his entire like publishing output at one point would be like he would do legitimately good work, but then his publishing output would be like, here's why this person fucking sucks and you shouldn't yeah. listen to them. <laughs> A lot of people like in Pan African circles still hate W. E. B. Du Bois uh for that. So like when you point when you post something that he wrote that was very good and academic like about reconstruction or like philadelphia ghetto and stuff like that he he had a book about the making of a philadelphia ghetto i believe and whenever i post anything um you know tying back to his research someone will always tweet to me look what he did to garvey he's an asshole as we were still (laughs) grudges who weren't even alive back then who still uh i uh, threw out the baby at the bathwater I took uh, American nationalisms as a class my last semester of college, and I decided to write like a like my final paper. They wanted like a forty page paper, and I wrote it on like the history of like black nationalism and like you know like the 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 W. E. Du Bois variety of like you know that I think kind of transformed into the NAACP and kind of um, the the Martin Luther King strand of like the civil rights movement, and then of course like you know Garvey and then like the Malcolm X more radical side of it. And I remember just like reading through, like pouring through all of W. E. Du Bois's like newspapers and just like <laughs> just copying down all of the times he talked shit about Marcus Garvey and being oh, like, yeah, be, like <laughs> be like, that's my evidence right there. <laughs> I was getting some shit because like when I, I was teaching uh, Du Bois to my uh, senior English classes and they were uh, I mean, everyone in the class had seen Black Panther, Black, White latino otherwise like every single student it's a marvel movie so they've seen it multiple times great great loading up of the uh next clip by the way i like well i i used it um you know we we watched in class together and i used it to show like living behind the veil double consciousness all that stuff and i was getting some shit mainly from white people about how how can you use that liberal movie in your classroom and like i was teaching them to boys and that was an entryway for them. You know, I know that Black Panther has shit politics as a movie, but and as a you know comic book. But at the same time, like that was how I could bridge the gap between what they already knew and you know the information I wanted them to get. And then once they got those concepts of, of dual consciousness, you know, we were able to use that to uh, analyze other pieces of literature, other times in history. And you know, we left Black Panther behind at that point. And, you know, as an educator, that's, you know, I think what I need to do. I need to, you know, bring, you know, that when Colin Kaepernick put out that Nike ad, that was a huge boon to my, uh, to the unit that I was teaching at the time, because it, um, it was on every kid's um, Instagram feed that day when that ad came out and it was in the discourse. I also, you know, I didn't teach the kids CRT, but I taught them what CRT was because they're watching the news and they're getting a fucked up interpretation of what CRT is. And I'm just like, well, you know, this is what it is. It's a legal study. Um, you know, it, it's not necessarily rooted in, um, you know, worker politics or anything like that. But, you know, you need to understand this because you're going to be fighting with people about it. And, you know, you can come from a better place from it. So, you know, I, I, use a lot of like popular media or like what's in the discourse to teach the kids. And then a lot of folks just don't get it that, you know, they're like, no, you should fucking teach them marks, you know, teach them, uh, you know, capital uh, volumes one and two to a bunch of high school kids that are working a full-time job at target. And then also in school all day. I mean, I think also um, 
bringing this back to like our Israel Palestine conversation, one thing about uh, CRT and the the backlash to it that I because I wasn't really paying attention to it that much, um, like you know back and forth because it's like it's like a college level stuff like academic study that like your kid like kids are not learning a college like you know what I mean like it doesn't make any sense that that's the thing that the right capitalized on. But then mm-hmm. we had um on on GTA we had a uh, uh, Nora Barris Friedman who uh, writes for the Electric Intifada. And she, um, like, they put out a bunch of stuff about ethnic studies in, um, uh, in, in California and how the, the struggle against ethnic studies actually is like a Zionist-funded, like, multi-million-dollar Zionist-funded mm-hmm. effort that kind of also touches on the CRT part because they were teaching, you know, um, Arab, like, Arab uh, studies as its own thing and teaching Palestinian history. And, you know, um, not wanting, you know, putting a bunch of money into not wanting, uh, you know, high school students to learn about that. Then suddenly kind of the critical race theory part, which is obviously the um, the dog whistle, like Republican conservative side of it, who are also like evangelical Christians kind of clicked for me like, oh, shit, like this actually hits on a whole bunch of different proxy battles that uh, that you wouldn't necessarily like think of at first, I think. I guess the silence means I should play Nation of Islam. Obama. Good time, yeah. <laughs> uh, while this will help uh, warm, I think warm you up. So we're talking a little bit about Black Panther, and uh, before we get to it and Trevor's thoughts on it, we have a little bit of found audio. Apparently, we know that Nation of Islam Obama has a relaunch WB show, which I know you're familiar with, Trevor. But this is actually from, he's also like everybody else now. He's biting our style. He's in the podcast oh game. Yeah, I'm a and, Patreon. Yeah, he's a, <laughs> he's a Patreon. That's the Barack O show. Get exclusive content. What devil needs to be burned this week? What honky do I want a necklace the most? That's only for patrons. <laughs> this is a free teaser of full Patreon content. Oh my God. My, my mind went racing on that. All right. Here's Obama, Nation of Islam, Obama responding to. Black Panther. Caught the music. Cut it. Cut it. I've been this deflated in ages. You know, uh, uh, I pride myself, and by the way, this is why this is being released as a podcast. Not for my normal WB show. I've prided myself on never trusting the white devil ever. And that includes his films, his TV networks. We all know why Bill Cosby got caught up in all those charges. He was going to buy NBC. But I let myself fall into the devil's game and get excited about Black Panther. Only to discover that Black Panther is a little Bill Cosby, pull your pants up, bitch. Doesn't want to do a goddamn thing about international revolution for the black man and then Killmonger's the motherfucking villain. It's bullshit. I haven't been able to get out of bed for a week. I still have my Black Panther costume. But I, I, I don't I don't know whether to wear it or burn it. Hashtag Killmonger was right. That's what I was trying to do. We'll keep fighting. But you won this one, devil. You won this one, honky. Black Panther's ruined. A lot of walk more. (laughs) 
So I feel like there's a lot of parallel in Barack Obama's thinking and you're thinking about Black Panther. Uh, yeah, kind of, sort of. Uh, <laughs> see, now I don't know what to say because you said everything I was going to say. Right? Now everything I do is going to be redundant. You now. were going to say that the, that Black Panther is a Bill Cosby pull yourself by your boot pants, by your, by your bootstraps. I mean, bitch. in that neighborhood, uh, you know, all, all the white devil stuff, everything. I was almost word for word. I'm almost worried that you read my mind. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Random question. Yeah, what, does it, what does it deal with this desk? Because there's always the most interesting books on it. Like, like, it's uh, my desk. Is it? Yeah. Oh, well, this is, what, this is where I sit when I'm coming to the report. Yeah, speaking of that desk, uh, yeah, Michael did read some interesting books. Like, this was always like full of all these like uh, a wide array of subjects of uh, books. So yeah, it was pretty. Yeah, he read did read some interesting stuff. When he uh, when he passed, Leisha released like the list of like, 20, 20 Michael Brooks um, like most important reads or whatever. They they did like a book list. Yeah, it was a it was an eclectic mix. Like he would um, try everything. Like I think the stuff he'd spoke about mm -hmm. was kind of what made the cut. But like, what he would like go through to get to like you know the books that he liked, he would uh, pretty much like sample like uh, a wide array of of stuff. So like I think I feel like for every five books he recommended, he probably he must have read like it maybe twenty. Yeah, for sure. I've I um I was definitely motivated by Michael early on in my like Twitch streaming days to cover international news and politics because like when I first came onto Twitch it was uh this was like February of 2019 so I've been streaming on here for kind of a while um but when I was on uh in like 2019 there was just everything and even now still it's usually just very U.S. centric um and so tuning into his show and then like some of my experiences of traveling internationally or so forth that was really what kind of got me interested in like international politics, geopolitics. And then that led down to like, I, I do a lot of research on macroeconomics or currencies or things as such, because um, sometimes I talk to people, I feel that um, for a very long time, we've just been like bailing water out of ships uh, and I want to like fix the ship. Um, so like, that's kind of where, like I, I wanted to go all the way up to the top to research like energy grids, you know, energy distribution generation, like currency, monetary theory and so forth. So. Uh, definitely heavily influenced by Michael's uh, just overall international scope and research. You know, you should reach I, out to and, and, and talk to, I think, on uh, your show. If you, I mean, I don't know if you have guests, but if you have, like, if you do interviews, um, <coughs> Jacobin, who's, okay. their science, who's their science writer, I think you guys would have an absolutely <coughs> conversation. Thank you. Sorry for coughing through there. I think I might have bronchitis. I'm not sure. My aunt has bronchitis at the moment, so we'll see. Yeah, that, I feel like rough. one good thing about Michael was that he was someone who could talk about the culture war stuff, but use it as almost like a gateway into the harder stuff. So mm. I think he's an example of using like the culture or beefing stuff to a good effect because he would cover, you know, certain things like that. He would like debate, you know, people and do, um, you know, the the debate baiting and everything but he really rarely he, yeah yeah very yeah, very, 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 rarely. Very, very very rarely yeah very rarely but when he did do it it was to kind of get people hooked into the more substantive uh stuff you know it, but you're right it was a minority of what he what he did but uh do you guys remember it, when he uh when he debated destiny and just talked over him for 50 minutes and drove <laughs> destiny into a fucking wall <laughs> 
he like he didn't come to debate he came to just like explain shit to destiny and yeah destiny so you might as well just talk over him speaking of uh good debates recently ben burgess charlie kirk uh, uh yeah, that is um, that is what we need to be doing. I have um, in December of 2019, I went to Hershey, Pennsylvania, to uh, stream and interview people at a Donald Trump rally. Uh, it was a Tuesday afternoon. It was raining. It was like 2:30, and there were uh, uh, man, there were like 12,000 people that were in this parking lot waiting to get into the Hershey Center. I interviewed like 30 Trumpies. Um, I was wearing. <laughs> I was wearing a USA um, scarf and I had like a USA umbrella to kind of like, you know, blend in a little bit. Um, I met Owen Schroyer <clears throat> of InfoWars and um, I was talking to Owen Schroyer, you know, back and forth a little bit. And he like, he immediately said like, oh, you were a Bernie Sanders supporter. I can't believe like you still like have any kind of like support of the Democratic Party. And I could like kind of quickly tell that he was like very well versed in taking things and I'm um, building those wedges, you know, finding a wedge issue, getting in there and seeing if he could like spread you apart. And so um, I was invited on the show to go and have a, like, a conversation with Owen Troyer. And um, I was invited on InfoWars. I didn't go on because like my philosophy or theory about debating is um, only go into a place if you're about like 99% certain of your positions and that you're going to win and that you're going to, you know, help out your side. But don't like just accept a debate because like it is going to be like something to do or some kind of content or so forth. Um, so at that time, I just I didn't feel that I would be able to represent my positions and my side well enough to make it anything worthwhile. And I didn't want to become like something that was just going to be like, you know, trolled and like, you know, lulled at. Um, so I really learned a lot kind of from that aspect. I live in the most cursed state because we got Charlie Kirk is from Wheeling, Illinois. Nick Fuentes, I think, is from Brookfield. And uh, Kyle Rittenhouse is from Antioch, Illinois, which is a place just below the Wisconsin border, where if you did white flight five or six times, you end up there. <laughs> and uh, so, Forrest, you got that clip of, uh, of, of Kyle? Maybe we can end off on here discussing this. Yeah, we're, we're, picking, the, we're picking the most, uh, the best end topic. Because I feel like you go off for yeah. hours on this. This case has nothing to do with race. Um, it never had anything to do with race. It had to do with the right to self-defense. Right. Um, I'm not a racist person. I support the BLM movement. I support peacefully demonstrating. I believe there needs to be change. I believe there's a lot of prosecutorial misconduct, not just in my case, but in other cases. And it's just amazing to see how how much a prosecutor can take advantage of somebody. So how do we get here where this guy can go on and, and say he supports BLM? I mean, one thing I found really strange was on both sides, the people who are taking it at face value. Like to me, I mean, I feel like some some publicist or lawyer just said, "Hey, say you um, support BLM," and he's like, "Okay, you know, like whatever." And but then I saw that. Okay. Like, well, <laughs> exactly. I'm really surprised he talked like that. I, I don't know. I just it took me by surprise. Someone in the comments said, "Cal Wokenhouse. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, like 
I saw both people on the right like, I'm through with this guy. We supported this guy. He supports BLM. And it's like, okay, are you really that dumb? But then I see a liberal <laughs> show up and it's like, wow, he's really triggering the conservatives. Like, I guess we won him over and they're ready to welcome him to the resistance. And I'm not, I'm not sure who's like the dumber one here, but it's weird that uh, there's liberals like, see, this shows we can get through to people, you know? And yeah, but I mean, to me, I just feel like, okay, this is just a cynical, um, you know, way to kind of save face and you know do some damage control but that's pretty much what i took it as well we i mean it also shows we have no historical uh you know a lot of people have no historical um uh like like awareness whatsoever right because the most famous thing throughout you know 60s 50s 40s was i support civil rights but i support civil rights but this is not a uh, a civil rights issue this is something else issue this is not like lynching i'm a, is not a, civil I'm a fan of martin luther king's teachings but he wouldn't approve of what you're doing type of <laughs> yeah stuff. and and of course that gets that gets thrown around constantly now but there's also like the i support civil rights uh but let's say lynching is its own thing or i support civil rights but um the right to vote is 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 a different like so it's always that but and like to see people take that at face value when we have like a historical record of uh, so many people saying I support civil rights, but it's like I support Black Lives Matter. But of course, that's what someone's going to say. There were fucking segregationists that would say yeah. I support civil rights, but or I support uh, the goal of desegregation. But and like that's I'm not a racist, but there's another yeah. popular it's one. It's not my fault that I'm that I did that because uh, Dr. Yacoub actually created <laughs> <we are wickedness. laughs> uh, the house. I. I think that even <clears throat> I think that this is a big aspect and it was there's a lot that can be spoken about from the Tucker thing. To me, the biggest takeaway that I've taken from it and something that I still don't know how to process is that Matt Gates offered an internship prior to any type of verdict delivery or just like you know, it was just out there, out in the open. I'm a sitting US House of Representatives member. There's a person on trial for murder. I think that they should be a part of my team. Uh, and like that, soliciting seventeen-year-old interns. <laughs> Good work. <laughs> this is, this is um, my seventeen-year-old son, Kyle. But yeah, I, that, adopted, <laughs> I adopted him after. That's right. that big kid. I forgot about that. That that to me is the bigger like, how have we gotten here? Question uh, of like the entire situation of that that that's just become like such a normalized up. And then like we heard. Um, I you know, it would be a whole nother topic to go into, but Lauren Barber, Lauren had um, comments about mm-hmm. Ilhan Omar uh, recently. And it's just like that this has become so normalized within like the U.S. halls uh, that that that's what I'm wrapping my head around is how has that become kind of normal mm-hmm. and like de facto and just like, yeah, it's just like, oh, that's just another thing that one of them said. Like, what are they going to say the next time? Speaking of uh, sitting politicians at Cal Rittenhouse, Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, introduced a bill nominating Rittenhouse for the Congressional Gold Medal. Uh, I saw that too. Yeah, a couple of days ago. So yeah, they're they're all losing the shit. They'll go. Matt there, Gates also you know? uh, uh, introduced a a bill to that. Um, it's like it was a national stand your ground law, so that in any state you could do what Kyle Rittenhouse did. And uh, I mean, of course, that's all that's all fucking virtue signaling. Like that's never gonna pass. But like, there, you know what I mean? But like support Talib or Ilhan Omar when they you know get a little too spicy. But the right, they know what the fuck they're doing. Like they'll. They'll stand behind this scumbag 100 percent and you know that's something i think people on the left are lacking balls basically although, oh, yeah. although i don't think any sitting i don't think any sitting congressman would actually uh hire kyle rittenhouse i think that's a great tweet like mm. for a right-wing politician to say 
I guarantee you if he actually applied for it, they'd be like, no. I don't agree. I don't agree with that. I think Gates would take him. I <laughs> I think that he is. Maybe maybe I have maybe yeah. I have too judgment much, is maybe bad I'm, enough. He might my, be. Uh, idealism is too high in this game. <laughs> I feel like Taylor Green would do. Uh, how, how about Peter King? He's he's another one that mm. might. Do he's uh he's he's weird because he was the Long Island uh, representative, right? Like for the longest yeah. time, and he also got a. He got tricked into um, uh, funding, like giving a bunch of money and, and trying to help out the IRA. And then when, um, when, because uh, he's, I mean, because he's Irish. And then when we invaded Iraq, um, he like tried to reach out to the like former IRA members and to be like, hey, like, are you going to support this with us? Like, I've supported you. And they're like, fuck no. And he uh, got extremely angry and like publicly took back his IRA support. <laughs> All right, so uh, yeah, don't want to keep you all too long. Uh, I just want to give everyone a chance to to plug uh, the projects you're working on and any final thinkings, not final thoughts, Forrest. Final <laughs> thinkings. I, I I stole this bit, so I'm trying to not <laughs> do that anymore. Uh, T, do you want to start? Uh, sure. Uh, thanks for having me. Sorry, I was a little bit late today. No and worries. Yeah, uh, go to ChampagneSharks.com, and that has all the links you need to support us. That's all the that's the patreon the youtube live streams the um twitch channel etc just go to champagnesharks.com and you'll find everything you need there but definitely subscribe to the podcast on patreon that's where we do most of our work thanks and you'll hear takes that you're not going to see on twitter which is good because we always get cornered into that twitter discourse and then we find ourselves having to argue on other people's terms so champagne sharks is really up there with you know expanding your mind on these issues thank you all right brad uh yeah hi uh brad uh you can find most of my stuff at touring news on twitch or youtube or uh twitter and that kind of stuff uh i guess um lately i've been like really deep down like uh decentralized autonomous organizations uh governance like web3 is there anything useful from blockchain and so forth um i kind of felt that um all of the blockchain space was just uh, written off and left to other people to create in development. And then I read a lot of papers about how different nations are looking at central bank digital currencies. You have India that just enrolled over a billion people into a digital identity system, and that's going to be heavily used with how they're engaging in services and good acquisition and so forth. So I'm really just, uh, if there's a topic that it seems like nobody else is researching, that's probably what I'm going to spend like a week or two of mine on. Uh, and so I'm trying to make some ties between like Luddism, uh, like Varifakism or some of Giannis Varifakis' ideas um, and like see what kind of synthesis could be built there. And Brad, are you going to be uh, streaming after this? Um, yeah, for a little while longer. Okay. So I'll, okay. I'll raid you after this. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Uh, Forrest, I know that movie night's taking a break. Where do you, what have you been up to? You know, I mean, we, we just, I mean, a break <laughs> is just like a week uh, okay. to, you know, so it was just, we, we did our last, uh, we had Eileen uh, Jones from, um, Jacobin, who's their film critic, on to talk about Nightmare Alley, which was a fun episode. And then I decided that, um, well, I'm, I'm going to be hosting This Is Revolution on uh, Wednesday with uh, with Conan and with uh, Matthew Film Guy from Majority Report. And we're going to be talking about um, A Woman Under the Influence, which is a John Cassavetes movie. And then we're going to be back for season two, I guess, of uh, Movie Night Extravaganza on Friday with, uh, we're going to be talking about Alien. So that should be a, a you know we're gonna we're gonna end up doing a full month of sci-fi um movies and there's a lot of ones that we've planned out so far and it kind of 
the second I feel like we start listing things off, like there's an insane amount that ends up getting put on a schedule. But um, <laughs> yeah, um, Brad, I'm sending you the uh, Lee Phillips book if you were interested. Okay, thank you. I, I think that he's a person that would be interesting to talk to. Yeah, I've read some of uh, Lee's work in Jacobin for sure. The name sounds familiar. Yeah, he's their science writer. But he um, he came on and talked to us about uh, Ad Astra. And uh, it, the conversation ended up going like, to some crazy places about climate change and like his his theory of like how socialists should um like not be embracing like any any form of uh, austerity or like you know personal austerity or like economic austerity and like we ended up having this like hour and a half long conversation with him about that and had nothing to do with that astra but i think that's, okay. that's someone that you could have a, a interesting conversation with sweet i really appreciate it and thanks for inviting me on this was a great time oh yeah thank you all for so much yeah likewise um yeah thanks t thanks brad again thanks for us as always and uh yeah you can always check me on patreon uh, patreon.com slash kenzoshibata my name uh we do the audio podcast there which you know some of them are exclusive uh, they've never been streamed um we're doing a lot of other kind of fun stuff uh over there i've been publishing essays at my classtime.substack.com um, which, you know, I may have decreased some of my free subscribers in, in the recent few weeks, but my paid subscriptions have gone up. So everybody go get canceled because it's uh, profitable. Uh, everybody have a great afternoon and uh, be kind to yourselves. Take care.